has been one of those weeks that I would not want to repeat. It's been an emotionally draining week. In fact, it's, cut, it's been an emotionally draining month. For the pastoral staff and a lot of deacons and a lot of you, it seems like uh, we've just been in the hospital room, if not that, the funeral house. And uh, I don't know. It's just been tough. Tough because when you lose people that you love, you, you lose people that uh, uh, have, uh, have, have walked so faithfully, you look around and you wonder, is God very fair? You wonder if God knows what he's doing, if God has lost control, and, and if it seems like um, just depression has, has sunk in. But the beautiful part of biblical prophecy is that it shows us that this life is a life that is transient. This is not the life that we are called to live We are to live this life in view of the life after this. Yes, we are to live in the present. We are to live faithfully as God calls us to. We are to walk faithfully. We are to persevere. But yet, if you see this life as being the be-all, end-all, you will be depressed. How beautiful biblical prophecy which challenges us and, and takes us to see what God has planned for us in the future and what encouragement it has been for me this week as I have prepared this sermon in the midst of the difficulties of these past few weeks to know that what God has in store for us is something so amazing. No eye has seen, no ear has heard what God has prepared for those whom He loves. And, and praise the Lord for that. God does know what He's doing. God does have everything under control, and we just continue to rely upon His strength. As we continue our study in the book of Daniel, we are looking in the second part in chapter 7 to 12, the prophetic portion of this book. Bible prophecy allows us to stand fearless, because as we know what God has planned for us in the future, we can stand fearless amidst the storms of this life, amidst the attack of this world, knowing that the good does win, God does prevail, and God is victorious. This morning we get to Daniel chapter 9, verses 20 to 27. This is one of the most important prophetic passages in all of the Scripture, one of the most pivotal verses uh, in the book of Daniel, but also one of the most difficult to understand. I apologize for those of you who are new to us this morning. Uh, and uh, are coming for the first time or uh, are new to our church because uh, the things you hear may be a bit over your head if you hear it for the first time. Pray that God would give you wisdom God would open up your minds, uh, especially if you have not tracked with us in this Daniel series. Oftentimes in the spiritual walk, we, we simply want to have our ears tickled. We want to hear the simple sermons. But there are times that we need to mature in the faith We need to hear things that are are a little bit more difficult. It should challenge us. Spiritual growth is being a challenge in in our knowledge of the Word of God. And I think you're going to be challenged this morning. So keep a bright mind and uh, keep alert. And I think God will use His Word, which does not return void, to encourage you in your spiritual life. As a means of review this morning... Uh, you've seen this chart before, but I want to, again, quickly review God's plan for the ages. This must be something that you have 
plastered in your mind. Because if someone were to ask you, what does the Bible say will happen in the future? Then you're going to be able to draw them this chart. You're going to be able to explain it to them. Not because of something you've made up, but because of something that the scriptures have said. We are living in the church age. We are living after the cross of Christ. We're living in the age of grace, and we are awaiting the rapture of the church. The rapture of the church is the next eschatological event that we as Christians are waiting for. First Thessalonians chapter 4 says, When the trumpet call of God sounds, the dead in Christ will rise first, and we who are alive will meet the Lord in the air, and there we will be with Him forever. We are waiting for the rapture of the church when Christ calls us up to Himself. And what will we do when we get to heaven? The Bible tells us in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 10, we will stand before the judgment seat of Christ. We will stand before the Bema. Here is a judgment for all Christians. We as Christians will be judged on our works for our rewards. It is not a judgment for our salvation. It is a judgment for our rewards based on our works as done here for the Lord. And so there is a call to be faithful There's a call to live this life for the Lord because when we stand before the judge, he will look upon us with great compassion. People who have been bought with the blood of Jesus Christ. And he will say, what have you done for me? Not why have you done these things as we talked about last week, but what have you done? And I hope you will be able to give a report of the life you have lived for him. Meanwhile, down here on earth, there are seven years of great tribulation. We've often wondered, how do you get seven years? We'll talk about this in Daniel chapter 9 this morning. Seven years of unprecedented judgment that God will reign upon this earth. You often wonder, how come the evils of this world seem to prevail? The great tribulation will say it doesn't prevail. God's righteousness and God's holiness demands that he judge those who are ungodly. At the end of this seven year is the second coming of Christ. When the Bible tells us he will step foot on the Mount of Olives, he will come back. All evangelical born-again Christians of any denomination believe in the physical return of Jesus Christ. We at Grace Christian Church believe in the physical return of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ will step foot on this earth again. And when he does come, he will usher in a period of the millennium. One thousand years when he will reverse the curse... He will sit on Jerusalem as his capital, and he will reign on David's throne, the messianic throne. This is in fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy as well as New Testament prophecy. At the end of a thousand years is the great white throne judgment. This judgment is for unbelievers. The Bible tells us in the book of the Revelation that hell will give up its dead. All those who are in hell now and all those who do not believe will stand before the great white throne judgment. This is the supreme court of heaven and the judge is God. And there he will open up the books of your life and he will judge you based on your works for your salvation. Because there are many people who think that by my good works, I will gain entrance into heaven. But my friends, as I've said many a times, there is no amount of good works that can overcome the bad works of your life. It's impossible. Every thought, every action, every motive, every lust, every heartfelt sin in your life will be judged. It is white because God demands pure holiness to pass through this judgment. Only if your name is written in the Lamb's book of life, only when the Lamb of God has died in your place, Jesus Christ, and when you place your trust in him, will you be able to avoid this judgment. 
Those whose names are not found in the Lamb's book of life are thrown to the lake of fire. For us, after the great white throne judgment, is a new heaven and new earth. Revelations chapter 21 and 22, when God will recreate heaven and earth because he loves us so much. And I don't know about you, but Christian life is, is a difficult life. And there are times when you will be disappointed and times when you will be discouraged. And times like this week when you're just emotionally drained and wonder, Lord, what is happening in this world? I take my encouragement and I often look to these last two chapters in the book of the Bible. They're very easy to find. The last two chapters. And there in Revelations chapter 21 and 22, the Bible says God will wipe away all of our tears. There is no more death, no more dying. We will be in the presence of the Lord forever. And there we will worship Him and enjoy the fellowship that the Bible says God has given to His children. And so if you ever get depressed and you ever wonder what in the world is happening in this world, would you go to Revelations chapter 21 and 22 and read about the new heaven and new earth and what God is in store for those whom He loves? That's why biblical prophecy is so important. Looking at a life beyond this, Some people say we often look too far behind, too far ahead without looking at the life in the present. The life in the present is very important because we live it every day. But if you're going to base your life's purpose and motives and goals on the life that you live now, let me tell you what, you will find that life is very hard. You will find that life is very unfair and that it's not worth living for the Lord with a very shallow perspective of how to live this life. But living in view of the soon coming of Jesus Christ, living in view of eternity, you will find out that your life is full of joy amidst trial. You will find out that you can smile amidst the sorrows of this life. That's why a lot of the great apostles, and and they were facing death, but they had such a, a great perspective of the eternal that Paul was able to say, for me to live is Christ, but to die is gain. It is better for me to die because I get to see Christ. And I, I posed this question to you before. How many of you would want to die today? Very few. But the correct perspective is, yes, I want to see Jesus with all of my heart. I want to, I want to see my Lord and Savior. And if you can't answer that, then perhaps your walk with Him is not a, a, a close walk. And so that's a bit of a self-examination that you need to do in your life. As we pick up from last week, if you remember, in Daniel chapter 9, verses 1 to 19, Daniel had been doing some Bible study in the book of Jeremiah. And he gets to Jeremiah chapter 25, and he realizes that his captivity in Babylon is about to be over. And his people would be returned back with the Persian kings. And so he prays a prayer, of, a very powerful prayer of confession before the Lord. And this is where we pick up the story in verse 21 to 23. Now, as I was speaking, praying, and confessing my sin, and the sin of my people, Israel, and presenting my supplication before the Lord my God, for the holy mountain of my God. Yes, while I was speaking in prayer, the man Gabriel, whom I had seen in the vision at the beginning, began being caused to fly swiftly, reached me about the time of the evening offering. And he informed me and, and talked with me and said, Oh, Daniel... I have now come forth to give you skill to understand. At the beginning of your supplications, the command went out, and I have come to tell you, for you are greatly beloved. Therefore, consider the matter and understand the vision. Daniel had been praying this powerful prayer of confession, and we find out in these verses that as Daniel is beginning his prayer, God is already answering his prayer. How amazing is that? 
God already sent out from the highest reaches of heaven, from the very throne room of God, a great vision. And he sends his, his most trusted, you can say, messenger, the angel Gabriel, who only in the scripture brings the most important of messages. And he says, Daniel, you are so greatly beloved. I'm going to reveal to you something very special. You remember the angel Gabriel from uh, the nativity story when, when she, he also brought the great news to Mary about carrying the Christ child in her womb. Greatly beloved are you, Daniel. How, how amazing when, when God can call you that. And you know what, my friends, because of the grace of God, and if you accept Christ as your personal Savior, you are his child and he calls you greatly beloved. So faithful and so special was Daniel that God gave him a special understanding, a, a special revelation and prophecy as it relates to the end time. You see, Daniel has been wondering, after we go back home to Palestine, what will happen? What's next? What's going to happen next? Well, look at verse 24. Seventy weeks are determined for you people in your holy city to finish the transgression, to make an end for sin, to make reconciliation for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up visions and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy. God told Daniel... There are 70 weeks or, or 70 sevens that will occur before Christ comes again and establishes his messianic kingdom. We don't have time to get into the details, but each seven talks about years. That's 490 years. From the beginning point, the starting point, to when the Messiah comes is 490 years. If you take this verse as a clock from zero to 70, when the clock reaches 70... Christ comes back. When the clock reaches 70, Christ comes back. When that happens, he will finish the transgression. He will make an end to sin, a reversal of the curse. He will make reconciliation for iniquity. He will bring in everlasting righteousness. He will anoint himself as the most holy. There, the reign of Christ will sit on his earthly throne at the millennium. Seventy years, uh, seventy sevens, 490 years. Now, here's the big question. When does it start? When does the clock start? Well, verse 25, look at it. Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the command to restore and build Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, there shall be seven weeks and 62 weeks. The streets shall be built again and the walls, even in troublesome time. The Bible says this clock begins when there is a decree for the people of Israel, to go back and build the walls of Jerusalem. Now, there were many Persian kings, but there were many Persian kings specifically written in the scripture that references uh, a decree. Cyrus, uh, in a decree of 538, allows them to go back and rebuild the temple. And this is chronicled in Second Chronicles 36 and Ezra chapter 1. Darius I confirms Cyrus's decree. Artaxerxes also uh, allows sacrifices to occur at the temple in the book of Ezra. But, but the key decree we, we want to take a look at is the fourth one. In Nehemiah chapter 2, Nehemiah, if you remember the story, was the cupbearer to King Artaxerxes. And he realizes that the walls of Jerusalem are in ruin. And, and he prays for Jerusalem. And, and, and just like Esther of old, he also goes before the king and he says, King, can I go back? Uh, can, can these walls be repaired? And Artaxerxes says, Nehemiah, you will go back and you will rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. And so we have the starting point. March the 5th 
of 444 B.C. That is a historical date. The Bible says from the start, there are 490 years. 490 years. Look at verse 26. And after the 62 weeks, after 62 weeks, the Messiah shall be cut off. But note this, but not for himself. When the clock reaches 69, when the clock reaches 69, the Bible says the clock stops. The Messiah is cut off. And I love this part of the verse, these four words, but not for himself. What a beautiful picture of what Christ did for us. Christ died on the cross, not for him, but he did it for us. And even in the Old Testament, the Messiah, the Prince of Glory, the King of Glory, who will come in all of his radiance and who, whose, whose words that come out of his mouth, we will all bow down before him. He comes and he dies for you and me, not for himself. You see, the Bible is so accurate. This is a, a very complex chart simply to tell you that we know when Christ died. Because we know the starting point, which was the giving of the decree. And the Bible says the Messiah shall be cut off. Whether in the Western or Jewish calendar, we see that on March the 30th of 33 AD, Jesus Christ enters into Jerusalem. He enters with the shouts of Hosanna, Hosanna. You remember the story. We celebrate Palm Sunday. People lay palm branches as he enters on a donkey into Jerusalem as the Messiah, the promised one. But oh, how the hearts of the people change. Within five days, on April the 3rd of 33 AD, they shout, crucify him, crucify him. From the shouts of Hosanna to the shouts of crucify, can you remember, can you think about how fickle the crowd is? How can they with one mouth say Hosanna and with one voice say crucify him? We would take Barabbas, a murderer over one who has not yet sinned. That is the heart of man. Unless you are too hard of them, I'm sure that if you were in one of the crowds that was shouting this, we would be the same. Because in our Christian walk on a Sunday, we sing praise and glory to God. But when we get to, to, to Wednesday or, or Thursday, when the effects of the world so get to us, we may not speak vocally words of blasphemy, but we say we would rather have the world. Crucify Christ. We'd rather have the world. You see, a lot of us go with the crowd. We simply sway with the wind and go with where the crowd is. If the crowd on a Sunday is glorifying God, we're all glorifying. If the unsecular, the, the secular world says we don't care about Christ, we say, well, I guess we really don't care about Christ. But we are called to stand fearless in this world and to understand that the Messiah has died for you. Will you be the one, when everyone says, crucify him, you are the one that says, Hosanna, be his name. You will stand out. You will stand out. But are you willing to be fearless, as we've talked about in this series, are you willing to be fearless for him? The king of glory was cut off, not for himself, but for you and me. Bible continues in the second half of verse 26. This is the events that will occur around the same time when the Messiah is cut off. And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. The end of it shall be with a flood until the end of war desolations are determined. The Bible tells us with the cutting off the Messiah, 
Jerusalem will be destroyed. This prince is the general Titus. In 70 AD, to quell the Jewish rebellion, Titus is sent by the Roman government, and there Jerusalem falls. He will utterly destroy the temple. He will utterly destroy the city. And Titus will prefigure the future Antichrist who will also destroy Jerusalem. And there the clock stops. The clock stops at 69. This was such a momentous occasion. If you ever get a chance to go to Rome and and you go to the Colosseum, right next to the Colosseum is the famed Arch of Titus. This commemorates this general's victories who later becomes a great Caesar uh, in the Roman Empire. And most tours will take you all around this arch, but if you have time, go inside the arch. And inside the arch, uh, under one of the reliefs, uh, is this picture of him carrying away the, the, the temple instruments and the temple apparatus. He utterly desecrates the temple uh, in the holy city of Jerusalem. This is a discipline by God for the rejection of His Son. The clock has stopped. The clock stops at 69. There is a pause. In biblical theology, or biblical prophecy, we call this the great parentheses. This is what Paul talks about in the book of Ephesians, the great mysterion, the great mystery of the church. And this pause is the church age. When the cross of Christ happened, the clock stopped at 69, and now we are living in the church age, the great parentheses. When does this clock start again? Well, it starts in verse 27. Verse 27 tells us, It starts again when the church has been removed. The church has been removed at the rapture, and the tribulation stops. That's the last seven. That's the last seven until the coming of Christ. Verse 27, And he shall confirm a covenant with many for one week. But in the middle of the week he shall bring an end to sacrifice and offering. And on the wing of abomination shall be one who makes desolate, even until the consummation which is determined to be poured out on the desolate. In verse 27, we are introduced to a new person. The he in verse 27 is not General Titus. The he in verse 27 is the Antichrist. Titus never makes a peace treaty with Israel. Here in verse 27, we say this future Antichrist will come onto the scene. He will make a peace treaty with Israel for seven years. But then he will break that peace treaty after three and a half years. At the middle, he will break it. He will go into Jerusalem. He will destroy the temple. He will destroy the city. He will stop the sacrifices. The future Antichrist is the one who will do this in verse 27. So therefore, the Bible tells us the clock begins again. The last seven will begin when the peace treaty is signed. Now, we've got three issues. Can this happen today? Can this process, can, this, can these events happen prophetically today? There are three issues. The first issue, the issue of the restoration of the nation of Israel. How can you make a peace treaty with a nation that does not exist? Ever since 70 AD, there has not been a nation Israel until very recently. And for a long time, biblical scholars, especially the liberal ones, thought the Bible must be wrong. The Bible must not be true. This nation has been gone, has been exiled since 70 AD. There is no way biblical prophecy speaks literally. If you know the history of the Israelites, you you know how God deals with them. 
God said in the book of Deuteronomy, the Mosaic Law, Deuteronomy chapter 28, obedience leads to blessing. If you obey me, I'm going to bless you. If you disobey me, I'm going to discipline you. Obedience leads to blessing. Disobedience leads to discipline. We've talked about this. It's it's what parents would tell their children. If you listen, if you obey, I'll bless you. But if you disobey, I have to discipline you. And like children, we choose disobedience. The Israelites chose disobedience. Even though they were given grace, God's patience ran out. And because of the continual disobedience in 722 B.C., the Assyrians, God sent the Assyrians to exile, destroy the northern kingdoms, the ten tribes of the north. In three subsequent conquests, culminating in 586 B.C., God used the Babylonians under King Nebuchadnezzar to exile the southern kingdom. Seventy years later, they go back, but they continually disobey God. And so finally, God says, I'm going to send the general Titus because you have rejected the Messiah. And in 70 AD, they are dispersed. The nation of Israel ceases to exist. There is no nation anymore. They, they go to Russia. They go to Germany. They, they, they go to, some went to China, actually. They go to Africa. They're, they're all scattered. It's called the worldwide dispersion of the Jews in 70 AD. And we wonder, will biblical prophecy carry through? How can you make a peace treaty with a nation that's not there? This is a picture of Revelations chapter 12, an artist's rendition of what happens there. In Revelations chapter 12, we have the red dragon, which is Satan. And the Bible tells us in Revelations chapter 12, the red dragon seeks to devour the woman who gives birth to a child. This woman represents the nation Israel. Israel will give birth to the Christ child. And throughout history, Satan has been bent on destroying the Jewish people because he knows that if the Messiah is born and the Messiah dies on the cross, then he's doomed forever. And that's why when the Messiah was born and died on the cross, the Bible tells us in Revelation chapter 20, he comes down with great wrath. He is angry. He is very angry. And throughout history, from the time of Herod, where he says, all those two years and below must be killed. To the Inquisition, to the Holocaust, Satan has been trying to destroy God's people. The wonderful thing is God protects his people. God loves his people. And how he protects Israel and how he protects his people is a reminder to us of Romans chapter 8. When he tells us we can never outrun his love. You know, if you look in the Bible, in the dictionary, there's a term called anti-Semitism. Anti-Semitism is a term that says uh, a hatred of the Jews, a great dislike for the Jewish people. Because historically and throughout history, historians have noted that for whatever reason, people don't like the Jews. You will not find a term in the dictionary of uh, anti-Chinese, anti-Filipino, anti-whatever. But anti-Semitism is, a, is an actual word in the dictionary because this is a, a worldwide historical phenomenon. And we know the reason why. Because Satan is very angry and it's bent on its destruction. Even some Jewish people thought, even at the time of the Old Testament, God's discipline is too harsh. Maybe God has stopped loving me. Maybe God can no longer restore his people. And that was the question posed in the book of Ezekiel. 
The prophet Ezekiel said, God, your, your, your punishment is so great. Are you sure you're going to be able to restore your people? God tells Ezekiel, Ezekiel, go with me to a valley. He goes to a valley with a bunch of dry bones. Ezekiel chapter 37. And God says to Ezekiel, Ezekiel, speak to these bones. Tell them to come alive. Now, the Stephen paraphrase of Ezekiel's reaction is, God, are you crazy? They're dead bones. Uh, they, they've decayed. They, they, they aren't like Lazarus. He doesn't know Lazarus. They aren't like Lazarus who just died. Uh, these, these bones are, have decayed. God says, Ezekiel, just speak to the bones. In Ezekiel chapter 37, we find out that, that God, uh, he sees an amazing miracle where, where bones come together and flesh covers these bones and, and these people become alive. And God says to the prophet Ezekiel, Ezekiel, tell your people, as I can bring life to these dead bones, so I can bring life to the nation Israel. And that's exactly what happened almost 2,000 years after their dispersal in 70 A.D. In 1948, after World War II, Israel was restored as a nation. The only country to have such a, a long history gone to become a nation, to have a, a dead language resurrected. In this issue, prophecy can be fulfilled now. There is the nation Israel. But when they are created, not everyone is very happy with them. They are surrounded by their enemies. And there we get to the second issue. The issue of the signing of the peace treaty between Israel and the Antichrist. If you read today's newspaper, Chinese, Caucasian, English newspaper, it's always about Israel. Israel and their peace process. How come a nation of only 6 million people is, 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 is in the front page of our newspaper? It's because God is not done with Israel yet. And how God deals with Israel is how he deals with us. Don't feel offended that God has special treatment for his people. God is a special grace and a dispensation for his people. But how God deals with Israel is a wonderful thing. Because how God deals with Israel is how he deals with us. Israel has gone through the peace process and it's failed every time. The peace of today does not seem to last. Everyone is looking for peace. The Antichrist, the Bible tells us, will come. He is the first horseman of the four horsemen of the apocalypse. Of Revelation chapter 6, there are four horsemen. He is the white horse. The Bible tells us he will come bearing the banner of peace. We have studied his life before. The Bible tells us after the rapture, in the midst of the chaos of this world, the Antichrist will rise to power and he will unite Europe under a ten-nation confederacy. And as the head of Europe, he will go to Israel and say to Israel, Israel, I'm going to give you peace. I'm going to broker a peace deal with you. And that will be the start of the clock. When that peace treaty is signed, the clock starts. But he's going to stab them in the back. He's going to renege on his promise at the middle of the tribulation after three and a half years. Israel is looking for peace. They are surrounded with neighbors who don't like them. And it's interesting, if you study the history of Israel, you, you see Bible come alive. In 1948, the day after they declared independence, the Arabs attacked, and they were able to win. Can you imagine that? A nation of one day old is able to defeat an invading army. In 1967, in what is called the Six-Day War, they were able to gain the Golan Heights, the West Bank, the Gaza Strip. In 1973, at the height of the Yom Kippur, their version of Christmas, at a national holiday, the nations attacked. And every time they were attacked, 
God supernaturally intervened, and they won. And that's why Israel will not return these three areas. And these three areas you read in the newspaper all the time. They will not return the Golan Heights back to Syria because it overlooks strategically the Sea of Galilee, the only major water source for Israel. They will not return the West Bank. Why? Because part of that is East Jerusalem, where the Temple Mount is. They will not return the Gaza Strip without the promise of peace because the Gaza Strip has some major ports. If you go to those areas, and I've been to those areas, it's nothing great. It's pretty much desert. But you see, Israel will not return these lands. Why? Because if it returns these lands, it's almost undefendable. Look at the pink on the map. It's an undefendable country. And Israel knows it's got enemies and it needs to protect. It needs someone to guarantee its peace. And the Bible says in the future, there will be a future Antichrist who will come. And he will promise Israel peace. And Israel, looking for peace, will sign with him. And that will start the clock again. But the Bible tells us he's literally a devil in disguise. He will break the promise at the middle of the tribulation. And he will destroy the temple. Now, here's the question I pose to you, the third issue. Is there a temple today? If you go to Jerusalem, will you see Solomon's temple? And the answer is no. How can you destroy something that's not there? How can you fulfill Bible prophecy if there's no temple? Well, if you go to Jerusalem today and you look for Solomon's temple or even Herod's temple, which is a a, a remodeling of Solomon's temple, you won't find one. You know what you're going to find? You're going to find the Muslim Dome of the Rock. And I'm sure you've seen in a lot of pictures. In the holiest site on the very Temple Mount where Abraham sacrificed Isaac, you will see the Dome of the Rock. This is not simply a simple mosque. This is the third holiest site of Islam. The third holiest site. The first holiest site is in Mecca. The second, Medina. The third holiest site is in Jerusalem. Why is it called the Dome of the Rock? Because inside this great dome is a rock. And I've been inside. It's just a rock. You can't go in there anymore. But there's a rock. And tradition says this was where Mohammed... Last step foot on earth, there's a footprint, they say, goes to heaven and receives the Quran and comes back down. So they revere, they don't worship this object, but they revere this momentous occasion. Can you imagine what would happen if the Jews built a temple, their most holy temple, right next to this Muslim holy site? You would start World War III. That's why it's heavily defended. They check your passports just to go up there. Those who patrol the area of the Temple Mount are not Israeli soldiers. They're Palestinian soldiers. You are not allowed to pray or close your eyes when you get there. It is a Muslim holy site. But yet the Bible tells us in the end times there will be a temple there. Because the Antichrist will destroy it. Perhaps we get a clue in Revelations chapter 11. In Revelations chapter 11... The Apostle John is asked by God to go measure the tribulational temple. John, measure the temple, but do not measure the outer courtyards of the temple because it has been given to the Gentiles. Only measure the temple, but do not measure the outer courtyards. When the Muslims invaded, when they, well, when the Crusades were lost and the Muslims invaded the Holy Land and, and, and Turkey and, and Egypt, Uh, They turned all the churches into mosques, or most of them. Very interestingly, 
uh, they're not going to rebuild the mosque. How do you turn a church into a mosque? Very simple. You cut off the cross and you put a moon. And that's why if you go to the Middle East, a lot of the mosques look like churches. Because they were churches. They just took down the cross and put a crescent. Uh, One of the reasons they did that was they wanted to ensure that the Christians uh, don't have these sites back. And the place they would put their third holiest site would be the place that the Jewish people revered the most, the Temple Mount, and they built their Dome of the Rock there. Well, perhaps, I don't know, but I believe, perhaps God blinded the eyes of the Muslim architects that when they were building the Dome of the Rock, they built it in the wrong place. You see, according to Old Testament, Solomon's temple was built facing the Golden Gate, the the Eastern Gate. If you look at this picture, way off in the foreground, uh, in the background, is the Eastern Gate, the arches of the Eastern Golden Gate. If you go directly west, you come to this big courtyard with nothing there except this copula. That's all you have. Archaeologists, biblical archaeologists have, have said, you can build Solomon's temple in all of its exact dimensions in this empty courtyard. And that would fulfill biblical prophecy. Measure the temple, but do not measure the outer courtyard because it has been given to the Gentiles. Perhaps, when the Muslims tried to build the Dome of the Rock, they thought they built it right in the center where Solomon's temple was. But God blinded their eyes and they were a bit off. Would the Muslims ever agree to have a temple next to them? Perhaps. You see, right now everyone's fighting over Jerusalem. Israel says, we don't care about, really, actually they don't care about the West Bank, Gaza Strip, they just want Jerusalem. And the Muslim says, no, Jerusalem is our capital. They're going to fight for Jerusalem, perhaps in the future. When the peace treaty is signed, the Antichrist will say, how about this? Let's make the city an international city. Let's allow the building of the temple in this empty courtyard, and you can have your lands back that were gotten in the 1967 war. And so this settles the issue, or at least this answers the issue of the future temple. In fact, Psalm chapter 122, verse 6, reminds us, pray for the peace of Jerusalem. They shall prosper that love thee. It's a promise. It's a biblical promise. If you pray for the peace of Jerusalem, God will bless you. Now, We've talked about a lot of this. That's a lot of information. And like I mentioned, I'm so sorry for those of you who who are hearing this for the first time. Uh, This may just simply overwhelm you. But hopefully it will challenge you. Uh, And how how will it challenge you? Well, can I give you two application points? Can I I give you you two two, two lessons to take away from this amidst all the things that are in your brain right now? You know, first of all, when I study this, I realize that God is sovereign. I realize that God knows what he's doing. I realize that what God has planned for us will come to pass. You see, biblical prophecy is not simply fascinating. The Bible tells us about the future so that our faith will grow stronger. Can I make an admission here? There are times, even as a pastor, that I have doubt. I have doubt. Satan throws that down into my mind. And and for a split second, I think, Is Christ the only way? You know, there's so many good people out there who do good. You know, 
did, did, did what God promised in, in, in about heaven, will that really come true? And we all have doubt if you are honest to yourself. But when I look at biblical prophecy, and I look at all the prophetic things in the scriptures, and how they are fulfilled to a 100% accuracy, that builds my faith. My faith is not built on emptiness. My faith is built on facts. And when I look at God's biblical plan of the ages, and how he is to a 100% accuracy fulfilled all of his prophecies, then I know also that same God, that unchanging God, will continue his promises for me as well. And praise the Lord for that. We all need our faith strengthened. The more you study biblical prophecy, the more your faith will be strengthened. Why? Because you realize God is in control. When the skeptics say God cannot bring back the nation Israel, God says, let me show you. And I'm not going to bring them back in 100 years. I'm going to wait 1,900 years before I bring them back as a nation just to show you in my own time what I can do. I hope you will think about the sovereignty of God this week as you think about biblical prophecy. God is in control. I don't know what you're going through. I don't know what struggles you're going through. I know the struggles of those who, who are in the hospital, and it's hard. They're living day to day. They're living hour to hour. There are some of them living minute by minute, and it's tough. And it's tough when you don't have anything to cling on. It is at those times that you can only cling to the Word of God which reminds us of the promises of God which He will keep and He will uphold. The second thing I want you to take away with as you study biblical prophecy is this. Biblical prophecy, prophecy draws the battle lines very clear. Biblical prophecy draws the battle line very clear. It is either the ways of the world or the ways of God. We, in our Christian walk, tend to cloud the issue. But in biblical prophecy, it is either follow the Messiah who was cut off for you, or follow the leaders of this world who will bribe you, who will, who will, who will deceive you into signing a peace treaty and then breaking it. You see, the allure of this world, with all of the advertisement and the marketing and the ads, says if you buy this, if you live this lifestyle, if you live in this condo, if you live in, in, in this village, you will be happy like everyone in the picture is happy. That is what the world says. And if you live your life on that side of the line, and you succumb to what the world says, you are in for a whole heap of disappointment. Because like the Antichrist who breaks the covenant, the world will not hold up its end of the bargain to give you prosperity and joy in this life. I have conducted funerals for the richest man, richest people in this country. And let me tell you what, it ain't about the money. It's not about the position. It's not about the title. The world lies to you because the world only looks out for itself. The world looks out for themselves as number one. They will use you and then spit you out. I've lived the ways of the world. I know about the ways of the world. And so do you. But many of us do not want to accept that. Biblical prophecy tells us the battle lines are drawn very clearly. Do you follow the ways of the world or do you follow the one, the king of glory, 
who himself will die, not for himself, but for you. And so when you study biblical prophecy, you've got to ask the question in your Christian walk, which side are you on? Whose side are you on? It's a funny thing that there are many Christians who live in this world today who, who battle for the world and it's against the Messiah. We try to explain to God why the world is okay, why we can live this way. And then we, we war against God and we say, God, you make me do this. You make me do that. Why do I have to come to church? Why do I have to do my devotions? Why do I have to pray? We war against God. And yet we forget He is the one who died for us. The world has done nothing for you. The world simply takes from you. It is the one true king who gave his all. The Messiah is cut off, the Bible says, but not for himself. I hope as you study biblical prophecy that your mind, as you step forth from this place today, your mind is so clear which side of the battle line you're on. Which side are you on? Are you on the side of the Messiah or are you on the side of the world? You you can't stand with one leg on each side. It doesn't work. Perhaps I can challenge you. If you want to see the stark difference of the dangers and the ugliness of this world, Perhaps you can try something called the media fast. You know, we think of fasting as um, um, giving up food. Some of us call it dieting. But a media fast, you know, this world is so connected. And like you, like me, you know, we wake up in the morning and we're logged on to Facebook. We're logged on to Twitter. We, we check our incoming messages. We're on the cell phone. And, and we are being bombarded. What if you try a media fast? I'm not saying don't do your work. I'm saying the things that you can go without one day, two day, three day, and see what happens. Let me tell you, I, I've been on these media fasts. The first day you will go crazy. The first day you'll wonder, I wonder if anyone sent me a message. I wonder if there's an important email. I wonder about this and that. But the second day, you realize, well, you know what? I can live without this. It's not too bad, but you still got to itch to just check. By the third or fourth day, you realize, you know what? There are a lot of things I can do with my time. And here's the thing. Once you get done with the media fast, and you go back to watching the same shows you watched, or the same sites you visit, or read the same thing, let me tell you, you're going to realize the starkness and the ugliness of the things you thought was just okay. Because of the media blitz, our minds are being so desensitized by the world, so desensitized that we accept it. But if you use that time to read the Word of God and see what God has to say, and then go back to what you're watching and reading and looking at and and thinking about, you realize, wow, the world is an ugly place. You will again see the starkness of the ugliness of sin. Only then, when you're repulsed by sin, will you be able to stand on the right side of the battle line. You see, the reality is when we are bombarded with media, and media is good to an extent, but when entertainment and other venues such as that say it's okay to divorce your wife, 
because you just have irreconcilable differences. It's okay to sleep around because your husband didn't love you or your wife didn't love you. It's okay to steal. It's okay to cheat because everyone's doing it. And you know what? We celebrate it when we don't say anything about it. We really celebrate it. Because our inaction, our not saying anything, in many ways is us also accepting it. When you fast yourself, just for a little bit, you again see the ugliness of sin. And only then will you be able to stand on the battle lines, the correct side. That's what biblical prophecy does. It divides very clearly the side of the good and the side of the evil. And the Bible tells us very clearly, the side of the good is the side of the Messiah who died in your place. Now go forth, my friends, and live this life for him. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the challenge of your word. It convicts even me. Father, there are times where I wonder if you know what you're doing. Or I wonder if you're still in control, but yet to see how accurate and powerful you are through prophecy, my mind is again renewed at your sovereignty and your greatness. I place my trust not on an empty faith, but on a faith that is fueled and built upon the facts of the Scripture. Father, I also pray that each person here would see in their mind a great divide, a clear divide in the battle lines for the hearts and minds of not only ourselves but our next generation. May it be that you would raise up a generation who sees that battle line very clear and will step to the side of the one who died in our place. The allure of the world that draws us to the other side is so strong. Break it, Lord. And I know that through the shed blood of Jesus Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit, we will again see the starkness, the ugliness of the songs of this world, which calls us to minimize sin. Help us, Lord, to live this life for you, knowing that we will one day enjoy all the beauty of heaven. Bless our people this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.